Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to Dulles. My name is Andrew. I'm the student pastor here. Worship team, thank you so much for energizing and preparing us uh, for this season. Um, speaking of this season, we're in the Christmas season, and I was talking about it with kind of everybody, all our teams before, that we are, um, what time is it now? It's like 10, 15. We're like six days and 14 hours away from Christmas, which is, means we're less than a week away from Christmas, which is crazy, right? Um, okay, just shout it out. What is your favorite Christmas movie? You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Just give me some favorite Christmas movies. Polar Express. Elf. It's a Wonderful Life. The Holiday. Home Alone. Die Hard. A Christmas Carol. All, all versions of them. Wow. Okay. If you need any expertise on which Christmas Carol to watch, go see Bill Campbell after this service. Um, okay, so my personal favorite is also It's a Wonderful Life. I think, Gary, you said that. Um, one of my favorite ones to watch. I, I think I love, like, the nostalgia of, like, black and white and being able to um, feel, like, warm and cozy, you know, on the fireplace. It's like an old, small town kind of thing. Um, and that's, like, what Christmas movies are about, right? They make you feel kind of fuzzy inside, and then there's that kooky, kind of weird, funny, sometimes tense family dynamic that is displayed and explained and then the main character or the family learns an important lesson about family, love, life, relationships, generosity, right? All those things. That's what makes a Christmas movie. Some people said Die Hard. Now, <laughs> okay, okay, guy, we're, we're friendly here, okay? I, but I would agree, okay? I would also, for the longest time, if anybody told me that Die Hard was their favorite Christmas movie... I'd be like, that, that's not a Christmas movie. It can't be your favorite Christmas movie. The only thing that it has to do with Christmas is that it happens on December 24th. And for those of you, there are some younger people here who have, maybe haven't seen Die Hard or don't know what Die Hard is. It's basically this movie where this ex-cop is going to have, going to a Christmas party with his family on the very top floor of a skyscraper and the family gets kidnapped by a bunch of terrorists and Bruce Willis is the cop and he makes his way up the skyscraper, taking out the terrorists, eventually rescuing his family, okay? Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Sorry. That movie's kind of old, so I mean, like, okay, so that it, it's a violent movie. It has a lot of, like, action. It's kind of sit, sit on the edge of your seat. Nothing that you would expect out of a Christmas movie. Um, we are in a series called God Come Close, and we're going into Matthew chapter 2 today. And I was re as I was reading Matthew chapter 2, preparing for this message, it kind of hit me, you know what? I think those people who say that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, they... They may be onto something. They, they may actually be right. And I may be wrong. I, there's a chance, actually. There's actually a really big part of me now that sees Die Hard, and I'm like, you know what? That's a really raw and a really relevant and kind of not spoken about side of the Christmas story. So, Matthew chapter 2, um, let's recap what we talked about. Matthew chapter 1, the first part, Brad talked about the genealogy of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus, and he pointed out specific names in that lineage that had um, kind of dark stains on their past. 
People like Tamar and Rahab and David and Bathsheba all made decisions, all made choices that kind of were not the best. People would look down upon them. Um, but despite that darkness through the lineage, through that out that lineage, despite Jesus' great-great-great-grandparents or whatever they are, messing up, being broken, making mistakes, still the light and the hope of the entire world comes from that lineage. So we talked about how darkness, from the darkness, light emerges. And then in the second part, um, last week, Brad finished up chapter one and we talked about the dialogue between the angel and Joseph. Joseph was Jesus's dad. And we talked about how the angel told Joseph who Jesus was going to be, who he was going to be to the world, who he's going to be to him, what the name Emmanuel, it wasn't just another title. It wasn't a nickname. It was an, uh, it was a promise. It was a promise. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He was promising that the God who was distant for the longest time, who came in pillars of fire and in wind, he was now coming close in the form of a little baby. So that's Matthew chapter 1. Jump into Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. That's Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. So immediately, right after talking about all this stuff, um, you know, the genealogy and then hearing Emmanuel, God with us, he's going to be the hope of the world, all these happy things, we're introduced to this guy named Herod. Now, let's give a little bit of background on Herod. Herod was what we would call a client king, meaning Herod actually had no royal blood in him. He was not in line. His dad was in government, and his mom was Jewish. He was born there, but he was not actually like in the lineage of any kind of kingship to become King Herod. A client king uh, was instated by the reigning power of that time. At that time, it was Rome. So the Roman Empire said, hey, Herod... You can go be king over there. In our day and age, we call them brown nosers. We call them suck-ups, right? That's basically what a client king is. Herod was a master at navigating the political waters of his time. He knew whose hands to shake. He knew who to stay away from. He knew who to suck up to. And he knew who to bad talk in public. He was the kind of guy that if one side was going to lose something, he would flip-flop to the other side, even if he didn't like them. Just knowing that it would gain him some sort of political advantage, some sort of control, some sort of power, he would immediately flip to this side. No allegiances. They were all contingent upon how much the other person could give to him. Um, So Herod's this kind of guy. He just like, all he cares about is being in power. All he cares about is being in control. And his life reflects that. So he gets to become a king, right? He finally gets what he wants. And while he's in now the highest position that he can be for a man of his standing in Judea, he's reigning over the kingdom of Judea, he still has, um, still has this power and this control-hungry attitude and, and spirit. And he begins to start suspecting some people around him were trying to take his power, trying to overthrow him, trying to assassinate him. The first person he suspected was his wife. He thought his wife was trying to overthrow him, so he killed her. And then he thought his two sons might be trying to do the same thing. (laughs) I see some husbands like, it's not okay. (laughs) Then he thought his two sons were going to do the same thing, so he killed them. And then he thought um, his brother-in-law was going to do the same thing. So he killed him. His grandfather, he killed him. Mother-in-law killed her. He has this hypersensitive, he's just frantic, panicked all the time that someone's going to take my power away, and he's willing to do anything he can to hold on to his control. And miles and miles away, 
in some backcountry rural town in a stable in the feeding trough for pigs, a little baby is born. And that little baby invokes the same fear and the same panic in Herod as his family members did. Continuing on in chapter 2. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. This word, disturbed, it's a very important word because it describes, first of all, how Herod's feeling. But that word disturbed is used in other places of the Bible. Another place we see that word disturbed is when Jesus is walking on water and walking towards his disciples. And his disciples thought that they were seeing a ghost walking on the water towards them. So just imagine if you were on a boat and you saw a ghost walking towards you, that kind of feeling that you would have. Disturbed, panic, terror. Okay, That's what he had inside his heart. Um, later on, at the, end of the, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus comes back from the dead. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that one as well. And he appears to his disciples as well. So imagine watching your best friend get murdered. Three days later, he's standing in front of you. That kind of feeling, that's the feeling that Jesus used. That's the word that Jesus says, don't be scared. Don't be disturbed. Don't be frightened. So it's a deep-seated fear. And in the case of Herod, it's rooted in losing control in the threat against his control. So when Herod finds out and he's deeply disturbed, he does what Herod does. He tells the wise men, hey, after you go find him, come back and tell me where he is so I can go worship him. He wasn't going to go worship him. He was probably going to go kill him, right? Um, the wise men get over there. They're super happy. Oh, look, it's baby Jesus. Give him three gifts, stuff like that, right? And then the angel says, hey, don't go back um, to King Herod. And then he tells Joseph and Mary, hey, actually, you guys got to get out of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And so they both go their different ways. They don't go back. Herod finds out. And what the Bible says is Herod is furious that the wise men outwitted him. That's another like tall tale sign of someone who just can't let go of power when someone outwits them, when someone's smarter than them. So Herod becomes furious. And Herod, instead of just dropping it, he says, you know what? Um, go send some soldiers over to Bethlehem and the surrounding area around Bethlehem and kill any baby boy under the age of two because I just want to be rid of it. Okay, so the soldiers go over Bethlehem and kill every single baby boy under the age of two. All because Herod wanted to keep control, to stay in power. Even to the end of chapter 2, we see the angel comes back to Joseph and Mary and says, hey, um, the one who was trying to hunt you down, they're dead now. So you can go back to Bethlehem. So even to his death, Herod never met Jesus. Herod never saw him. Jesus probably not, didn't get above the age of five, and yet Herod was on this focus mission to take Jesus out because it was a threat to his power till the day that he died. This is the dangerous and the violent part of Christmas that we don't often talk about. And so there's a point in every single sermon, if you've been in church before, that you know the pastor reads a story from the Bible and then they connect the Bible story to us. This would be that point. And you're probably thinking to yourself, I'm nothing like Herod. Like that guy's a sociopath. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. The closest thing I have, Andrew, is maybe the part about the mother-in-law, but it was just like a thought, I swear. While extreme, Herod is a picture of a very ancient brokenness 
that lives in every single one of us. And I say that word ancient because it travels all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the very first two people ever to be on this earth. They didn't eat the fruit for fun. They didn't eat it because maybe they were curious. They ate it because they wanted it their way. They wanted to live their life their way. They wanted to be in control. And that action, the desire to be in control of me, of my life, it broke the world. And it broke us. And it's rooted in us wanting to have it my way. In every single heart, there's a little King Herod. There's a little King Herod who wants to be in control of everything that goes on. And every time something feels threatened, every time the little Herod feels threatened, it reacts. Every time it feels like control is going to be taken away, it reacts. So you're thinking, what's wrong with that, though, Andrew? What's wrong with wanting to be in control? Our um, one and a half, well, actually, yeah, one and a half yesterday, one and a half month old son, he is already displaying wanting to be in control. I'm sitting there feeding him with him on my lap. You know what happens when he doesn't want to lay on his back and eat? He screams until you shift positions to the position that he wants to be in. And then he starts drinking again. And then he's happy. Okay? He's six weeks old. Do you think he's consciously thinking, I want to have this my way? Like, dad, dad is not doing what I want right now. Like, I'm going to scream until he does what I want. No. This is something that's naturally inside our little baby boy. The want and desire to be in control. And for those of you who have kids, you know what I'm talking about. And then as they get to toddlers, doesn't it get more intense, right? The words no or I don't want to. When you say, hey, it's time to go to bed. And they say, I don't want to. It's not because they have a moral dilemma about going to bed. It's because they want to be in control of what's going on in their life. They have that desire to have it their way. And then you get into teenager years, right? And then it just, it kind of gets worse as it gets older, right? And then you get to adulthood and, you know, most of us sitting in here are adults. And I would actually say that for most of us, this whole wanting to be in control thing is actually extremely nuanced. It's a really, really big gray area that maybe we don't even recognize or we don't even see anymore. And the reason is because the belief that you should be in control of your life, that you should have it your way, is ultimately a form of slavery. That little King Herod is ultimately a form of slavery. Think about it. Where did you learn to want to be in control of your life? Like, think back. Like, when did you think to yourself, like, I need to learn how to want to be in control? Or going to that university or that college, where did you learn, like, I need to learn somewhere to be in control of where I end up in college, or your financial state. Who taught you to want to be in control of your finances? Who taught you to want to have control over the people that you date, the person that you're married? Nobody. It's something that is just inside of you. And then in some ways, we even begin to accept and normalize, maybe even glorify the desire to be in control, or we glorify how in control someone is. The number of hours that a student athlete puts into their practice in hopes that they get noticed by a scout, in hopes that they can get a scholarship, in hopes that they can get signed. The amount, the, the schedule that they live by, we glorify that. Like, oh my gosh, you're doing such a great job. 
the amount of work that an employee takes on so that they can get a raise or a promotion. That's glorified. You get employee of the month if you can work 80 hours a week instead of 50. All these things we would say are not bad things, right? It's not bad to have goals. It's not bad to have ambition. It's not bad to want to be something. So that form of slavery, it's not necessarily that being in control is the thing that's bad. It's the bondage of it that's dangerous. It's the bondage of continually wanting it and almost subconsciously wanting it, not even noticing that we want it, living our lives, not even realizing that all we care about is our way. Because the reality, the reality is at the core of every human heart, there's a slave driver who's saying, your way is the best way. 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 Continually repeating over and over again to you that nobody else knows best. You know the best. Your decisions are the best. Your choices are the best. Your thoughts are the best. Your way is the best way. But guys, think back in history, in our life. Our way is what destroys relationships. Our way is what breeds intolerance for people who think differently than us. Who believe differently than us. Who just are different than us. Our way is what continues the cycle of political and cultural divide. Separation from those who vote differently than us. Our way is what progressively makes us more focused on ourselves and less on the people around us. And even though there's a violent part of Christmas, that violent and dangerous part of Christmas, it is a declaration of war against this bondage. There's an offensive spirit that Jesus had coming into this world. He said it himself later on that he came to proclaim the release of those who are captive and to set free those who are oppressed. And so many people of that day thought, he's finally going to take out the Roman Empire. He's finally going to free us from this political tyranny. We're finally going to be out from under the hand of the Roman Empire. But his message is so clear. His life is so clear that he wasn't talking about that. He wasn't talking about politics. He wasn't talking about culture. That captivity and that bondage that he was talking about, he was talking about freeing us from the brokenness that's within every single one of us. The brokenness that enslaves us to ourselves. And one of the things we talked about in this whole series is that the Christmas story doesn't have a moral to it, right? It's not like the Christmas story is you got to do this. The Christmas story is about what God has done for, what God has done for us. And so when a liberator sets someone free or sets a group of people free, they don't force them into freedom, Right? They don't go over and they don't take out the people who are oppressing and say, okay, now you have to live in our freedom. You have to live with us. They give them a choice. They give them protection maybe. They offer their hand. What they ultimately do is they offer an alternative, a different way, a different way to live life. And that should resonate with us. It resonates with me because I think back to every single decision and choice that I've made that ended up in destruction or it ended up in pain, it ended up in hurt, in ruin, in emptiness, in loneliness. Those decisions were all rooted in my desire to live my life 
the way that I wanted to live my life. They were rooted in the decision that I wanted to be in control. The way I responded to to Jesse defensively in an argument, it's because I wanted to get my point across. I wanted to be heard. I thought I was right. The decision that disappoint my, disappointed my parents, that hurt them, is because I wanted to live my life my own way. I wanted to do things my way. And Christmas is the story of Jesus getting up close and personal with that with my brokenness, with my desire to live my life my way, and fighting to free me from it. Fighting to free me from it and offering me a different way other than the cyclical mess that I keep creating because I think that my way is the best way because of my posture of control. This freedom that we find in Christmas, that Jesus offered when he came to this world as a little baby boy. The freedom from that mess, the freedom from that enslaved spirit of wanting to keep control of the little Herod, it's not always easy. Surrendering control is not always easy. Deciding to live your life not the way that you want to live your life is not always easy. It's not always comfortable. Surrendering to Jesus hasn't always been painless. And you know what? It doesn't always make sense. But it's always been good. It's always been good. And as someone who maybe has a little bit of a bigger King Herod in his heart and his life, someone who has wanted to hold on tighter than most people to control in his life. Someone who has picked his way probably more times than the average person. The way of Jesus, the way, the freedom that he offers is so much better. It's so much more freeing. And so how you start this or what what you do with this, knowing this, It can take a little bit of time because naturally we are caused to believe that our way is the best way. And so it's hard for us not to think that way. But the way that I started, and this is a prayer that I still say to myself. This is a prayer, I mean, not these exact words, but the general idea. It's the same thing I say. And so if, as I was speaking, you maybe saw the little King Herod in a situation earlier this week or you heard the slave driver telling you that your way is the best way even just this morning this is the prayer that I pray for myself and if you want to you can say it along with me Jesus I'm tired of what happens when I'm in control time gets wasted opportunities are missed Relationships are broken. People are hurt. I've made such a habit of being in control, of always wanting my way. Jesus, break my selfish instinct. Replace my closed fists with open hands. 
shatter the mirror that causes me to continually and selfishly look inward and open my eyes and my hearts to others. Thank you for fighting for me. Thank you for freeing me. I surrender that control to you, Jesus. Amen. Dulles family, the Christmas story is a beautiful story of freedom. I should have invited the band up sooner. I'm sorry. Band, you can come up. Christmas story is a beautiful, beautiful story of freedom. And one of the hardest parts is it's a freedom from something sometimes we don't even know that we need freedom from. But Jesus came into this world knowing that. And there's grace. And there's that forgiveness and freedom to live the life that God ultimately has for you to live. I love you guys so much.